2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 72 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al?
0: I'm all right, thanks, Valerie. I've been out for my walk with Propracety Pop this morning, and I'm oh, yes. just at my desk doing my thing, as you do.
2: Very nice, very yes. nice. What have you been yes. up to lately?
0: Oh, I've had a pretty exciting week, actually. I, I, um, yesterday, I was able to reveal the cover for Breath of the Dragon, which is book three in the Mapmaker Chronicles series. Um, so that was very exciting. It's a fanta- another fantastic cover. I think that um, Ashet has done such a great job with them. Um, so that's exciting. It comes out on the 29th of September. We have a cover. You can pre-order it now, and I'll put the link in the show notes.
2: Yeah, fantastic.
0: But I also had some other exciting news as well in that... Um, Do I will. I will. Well, just wait. Um, the uh, uh, Quinn's going to Turkey. So Queen's the going uh, to Turkey. <laughs> Quinn's going to Turkey. Uh, the Mapmaker Chronicles has been um, bought by a Turkish publisher. It's going to be translated into Turkish wow. and will be yeah, and will be distributed um, obviously in Turkey. But the most exciting thing, of course, is that I get copies for my bookshelf.
2: Yes. Oh my goodness. Are they we, using the same cover?
0: But uh, I don't know. To be honest, I'm not quite sure what the what the story will be. I'm sort of hoping that. It will be, um, I don't know, who mm, knows, who international writes? covers. I mean, seriously, the excitement of that is just unbelievable. Yes. Mm.
2: Wow. Do you know what? That's occurred to me, what something just occurred to me as you were talking then. My book, Power Stories, has been translated into Spanish. Oh. But um, I have you not seen one? the cover and I haven't got one, so I should You need to get one. one. You've got to chase yeah. that up. Absolutely. Yeah. uh, Okay. Anyway, well, I have been busy in the throes of uh, magazine writing stage two. So a lot of our, yeah, a lot of our graduates who have done stage one, you know, want to keep the momentum going and want some help with pitching to editors and feedback on their articles. So we've got a great group of really talented people and that's what's keeping me busy because they've got so many ideas Mm. and so many great, you know, pictures. Because you take all the
0: pictures and everything, don't
2: you? Absolutely. Yeah. And I give them feedback on their pictures. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's been busy. Oh, I can
0: imagine it's a great, um, great course to do though if you're unsure about your pitching and stuff, like having someone read over them for you and give you feedback and tweak them. Because I know that I've been watching the Facebook group and I know that lots of people have been successful yes, based on you know the advice that you've given them. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah they've been published in all Just sorts brilliant. of magazines. But let us move on to the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week. Let's do that. Yes. What have you got for me? What girl? have we got? We've got. I found a link on. Um, it's called. A- it's a blog called Rant with Occasional Music. Lovely. <laughs> yes. It's the blog of a writer, musician called Derek Flynn and I just thought it was good, this, this post was good because it's brutally honest writing advice from brutally honest writers. Oh. And the advice is stuff, he's sort of compiled advice from different writers and it includes stuff like Ernest Hemingway saying, the first draft of everything is shit. Which it is. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. it absolutely is, yes. And uh, Harper Lee saying, I would advise anyone who aspires to a writing career that before developing his talent, he would be wise to develop a thick hide. Oh, it's so true. The rhinoceros skin is absolutely essential. Absolutely. But the Mm. most important one, of course, don't, from from Lev Grossman, don't take anyone's writing advice too seriously.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I, 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 I sort of, Agree with that to a degree, um, in the sense that I'm about to give some writing advice here, so you can completely ignore it if you want to. Yes. But I honestly think that you don't know how to write a book until you've written one, mm. and then you know how you write a book. Mm. Because I think everybody approaches writing books differently, and until you learn how you write a book, you can't, it's incredibly difficult to actually. Um, to even know what to do, so yeah. I think the, the the absolute best thing that you can ever do is just to start writing a book and have a go, mm. and then you work out your process as you go. And I think it takes. Um, I remember we talked to Sylvia Day a few episodes back, mm. and she said that she thinks everyone should write three manuscripts before they even attempt to get anything published or self-published. Yeah, and I, I tend to agree with her. I really think that it takes um, several goes before you work out, you know, exactly. How you do it. Mm,
1: absolutely. So
0: please ignore my advice because, <laughs> as Lev said, don't take anyone's writing advice too seriously. But I honestly think that, you know, the best thing that you can do is just see what you do. Yes. Mm. But uh, <clears throat> Harper Lee, who we
2: all, all just quoted, you oh. know, has been in the news lately, as we know, mm. because of Go Set a Watchman. And mm. you said that you weren't going to read it. I didn't and I won't. Yes, yes that's right. Because mm, um, I'm
0: stubborn like that. But
2: it's in bookshops everywhere, pride of place, front and centre. You mm. can't avoid it. Mm. But I thought it was interesting this link I found in The Guardian. Uh, a US bookshop is offering refunds for Go Setter Watchmen. Mm. Okay. Yes. Refunds. Yes. Yeah. That's. It's making a statement, but of course it's giving them a lot of publicity (laughs) because it's a bookshop in Michigan called Mm. Brilliant Books. And it's saying that customers are owed apologies (laughs) Mm. for portrayal of Harper Lee's long-lost manuscript as a nice summer novel rather than an academic curiosity Interesting. Interesting. So it's going to the extent of saying, we'll give you your money back.
0: But I think it's interesting too because I know a lot of people, like, you know, we are kind of right in the middle of of the world of writing and stuff. So we understand that it was written as a first draft, that the second book is actually, you know, that that, um, To Kill a Mockingbird was actually the second book, not the first book. But lots of people I've spoken to, you know, just your average Joe reader in the street, they think it's a sequel. Yeah, they, right. they believe that it was written, you know, second, they don't understand that it was a first draft of what it actually became To Kill a Mockingbird mm. and they are disappointed. Like mm. I've seen so many people in my Facebook feed are just like, oh, I really liked the first one better, oh. you know, and I, I I do wonder, you know, that, that it's been kind of – St- sold strangely. Shall we just yes, say that? Yeah, let's yes. just say that, shall we? Yeah. I so. wish
2: we could know, you know, why, like, what Harper Lee really
0: thinks. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, I wish we could too. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, whether, mm, I don't, you know. Like, you always wonder what really happened with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. It's the same. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I really want to know what Harper Lee really uh, is. Uh kind of. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <Kinda>. <laughs> Yes. Um. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it right there. I think. <laughs> Moving right along. Moving right along.
2: What to have you got for me? A link from Jezebel. Uh, it's a post called "Om de plume." What I learned sending my novel out under a male name. Mm.
0: Interesting. It was a very interesting post. This I was. Yeah, I read it. Very, very
2: interest. interesting.
0: So you know, she um,
2: she sent out uh, she. You know, various queries to people and um, under the name of George. And within 24 hours, George had five responses, three manuscript requests, and two warm rejections. And that was uh, out of sending six queries out. So she got five responses at least. Okay. And she says, for contrast, under my own name, the same letter and pages sent 50 times had netted me a total of two manuscript requests. Mm. Mm. Interesting. And okay. she says, My novel wasn't the problem. It was me, Catherine. So, and she says, I wanted to know more of how the Georges of the world live. so I sent more. Total data, George sent out 50 queries and had his manuscript requested 17 times. He is eight and a half times better than me at writing the same book. Fully a third of the agents who saw his query wanted to see more, where my numbers never did shift from one in 25. Isn't that
0: interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. And sad <laughs> really sad really really sad mm. i mean it just makes you wonder like what's going through people's heads really well
2: it's obviously why miles franklin did well Ma- what miles franklin did mm. And, um, and uh, also, uh, we've mentioned this in a in many, many episodes ago, so new listeners may not remember the story, but, of course, there is um, Men With Pens, who is James Chartrand, mm. and um, who wrote under James Chartrand for oh, a long time until she was outed. And uh, the reason – and her name's Louise, and I met her at a bar in Austin um, – <clears throat> And uh, the reason she wrote as James Chartrand is she found that when she was, you know, putting her work out there, and she doesn't write novels, she's like a copywriter, she would easily get paid double, triple, you know, when she was writing as James as opposed to when she was writing as Louise. Yes. Mm, So... You are quite quiet,
0: Alison. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, what do you say? Like, what can I say? Like, I here I am as a as a female writer and author, and there you are as a female writer and author. And I mean, what do you say? There's, I, I, you basically go. Um, I mean, we've seen other stories about you know bias in in all manner of areas. There was a, a piece on Facebook yesterday. Um, about two people that are doing the same job. One of them has been doing it for four years. One of them's been doing it for three months. Mm. He's male, she's fam- female. The male who's been doing it for three months is getting $10,000 a year more mm. than she is. Mm. Even And he even said, I thought she'd be on more than I am because she has more experience. Mm. But no. So, you know, like I, I just, you know, I, it just makes you realise that we have a long way to go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's all there is.
2: And related to that is a uh, post that was in Life and it's called This Is How Lady authors were told to promote their books oh. in the nineteen sixties.
0: Yes, <laughs>
2: have you read I've, that one? I have. I saw it.
0: <laughs> Dean sent it to me, and I was just like, "Right, I'll get myself a cat and a boa and some underpants."
2: <laughs> yes. So,
0: um, uh, the it's
2: it's it's about in nineteen sixty nine when model turned author Jean or Jean Ragonière was promoting her new novel, The Beauty Trap. The advice that she got was quite gender. Specific. In a life photo essay called What It Takes to Be a Lady Author Anymore, she posed with shots on how a woman should promote her literary work. A successful lady author, the caption suggested, must swim a little, exercise in a bikini, and be photographed in bed.
0: <laughs> well, see, like right there, we're in trouble. Like, yeah. I, A, I don't swim, B, I don't walk Pop in a bikini, <laughs> and C, I'm never going to be photographed in bed. You like, don't really? swim. Oh, well, I do, but not, not for the joys of the world. Oh, okay. <laughs> not to Instagram, baby, okay? Okay, I get it. Yeah. Mm. Uh-huh.
2: Yes, well, we, we have, obviously we haven't come that far since
0: 1969. Wow. Well, really, no. have we? No, and there's today's depressing thought. <laughs> yes. Let's... These are really on an upbeat level today, aren't but we? But you've got
2: something a little bit more encouraging,
0: I do. Well, I do. Um, One of the things that I get asked a lot is um, I have a lot of uh, readers and members of my um, blog community who ask me they're really keen to encourage their own children to write. Mm. They want to, um, you know, get them going and they want to know how to get started and all that sort of stuff. So um, one of the things that I think is always a really good thing with kids is to give them a goal. And there's a new award called the Young Writers Award, uh, which is open to kids 9 to 13 it gives them the opportunity to become one of Australia's youngest published authors because the, the winning stories will be published in an anthology. Right. Um, so they're actually going to put out a book, which will be in bookshops and all of, and distributed throughout Australia. Um, and so, I think if you've got a kid who likes to write and you're interested in you know developing that, have a look at at the award. Um, encourage them to enter. I think entries are open until, look, the 11th of December. So they've got a lot of time to actually, you know, get something together. I'll put the link in the show notes um, for all the details of how to enter and that sort of stuff. Um, but I know lots of kids who are really enthusiastic writers and I think that it's definitely worth giving them something to work towards. And there's prizes. I don't know what the prizes are but they're cool prizes <laughs> on the website. So, you know, that's all right then, isn't it? Fantastic. Yeah, that's so, awesome. Something has been more upbeat. That's right. So entries are now open. Um, they close on the 11th of December, and the shortlist will be um, the shortlist will be announced on the 22nd of February 2016. Awesome. So I want to talk about Kitty Lila. <clears throat> oh, great. I love it when you bring up those topics of conversation that are so fascinating to me.
2: So I've been trialling this new kitty litter, which is um, it's fully recyclable and you don't have to clean it out. You just chuck the whole box in the bin uh, and it's called Pearly Box. Anyway, they... Um, uh, they, have su- they have such a demand on th- this new product that they've uh, been overwhelmed by response, and she's, they've run out of stock. So they're pausing all orders. And I'm like, Oh my god, I'm going to die! Like, you're in <laughs> you know, a first world problem, right? Okay. And they Where said, Where are you going with this? <laughs> they said they sent this email back, and it said. We are sending out the last pearly boxes tomorrow, and there are still a handful left. So, if you would like to place another order to tie you over, oh, then you are able to do so. Tie you over, not tied you over. I know. So, my, I was, it am um, overwhelmed with immense joy that I could get more pearly boxes, but I was then very disappointed at the use of tie you over. And that is a common mistake, don't you think? Because in fact, the terminology is tied you over t-i-d-e and the macquarie dictionary defines it you know it's the phrase tied someone over is to get someone over a period of difficulty or distress or (sighs) enable someone to cope temporarily so surely she meant
0: that she was going to help Tide me over. She was gonna tide you over. I have to laugh though because um I've just recently had there's just been usage of this in my life recently myself. So I'm at the bakery the other day with my youngest son who's eight, and I'm buying, you know, today's whole meal slow sliced toast, you know, loaf. And he he looks up at me and says in this enormous voice, Mum, I think I'm gonna need a white roll to tide me over. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> for the half an hour to lunch <laughs> but the entire like there was you know 10 people standing there at the bakery and they all just cracked up i thought it was hilarious so he's using it correctly i'm very proud of him yes
2: i would be very proud too well done
0: <laughs> just need one to tide me over
2: awesome all so right. yes so Tied you over, not tie you over, everyone. Okay.
0: <clears throat> Thank you for that, Valerie. What's happening
2: in the world of blogs? Oh, Moving it's so exciting. We've got on.
0: some excellent news. So Nikki Parkinson from stylingyou.com.au, who we interviewed for our podcast A many months ago. Yes. That was when her book came out. So it would be like last October, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, she has won the Telstra Business Awards um, in Queensland, the micro business category. Yay, Nikki. So go, Nikki, and proving that, you know, blogging can be a serious business. So, you know, I I think she's probably the poster girl for, you know, building your blog into a business in Australia. And I think she's done a brilliant job. So well done, Nikki.
2: Well done. Fantastic. We love Nikki. very proud. Yes, very proud. Hmm. But let us move on to our writer in residence this week. I think this guy is fascinating. His name is John Tessarch, and he is a Melbourne-based author. And um, I thought it was interesting because he's 47, so he came to writing later in life. And he actually started off as a um, world-class cellist. You know, He went to Vienna to um, study, but then quite Sadly, he became allergic to the rosin that you rub into the bow of the cello. So his skin started falling off and he couldn't play the cello anymore. So he had to find another career and he decided to study law and eventually became a barrister. But a few years ago, he unfortunately developed tongue cancer and um, had to get part of his tongue cut out and he had some time off. And during that time, he, you know, uh, he had to to, you know take stock of his life and have a rest and he started to do a lot of writing and he ended up with his first novel in 2010 called The Philanthropist but he has just released his second novel The Last Will and Testament of Henry Hoffman so I thought that it would be a fascinating um, interview to have a chat with John. Thanks for joining us today, John.
1: Nice talking to you, Valerie.
2: Now, for readers and listeners who have yet to read The Last Will and Testament of Henry Hoffman, which is your latest novel, can you tell us what it's about?
1: Yes. Well, it's a novel which is about three siblings whose lives are turned upside down when their father is diagnosed with dementia and shoots himself rather than ending up in a nursing home. After his funeral, his eldest daughter, Eleanor, discovers a will in which he's left his entire estate to a woman she's never heard of before. She doesn't (laughs) know what to do. She doesn't know whether to um, show it to her siblings or to hide it from them or to tear it up and pretend it never existed. She eventually decides that she will hide it and she sets out to discover this woman and who she is and to discover the truth about her father's past and what she discovers is something she could never have imagined.
2: Right. So how did the idea for this book come to you? Was there some kind of light bulb moment or did the idea evolve over a long period? Can you tell us about that?
1: Yes, I've actually thought about that um, quite a bit recently, Valerie, because the the writing of the book, um, as you we'd appreciate it was quite a long process, probably took me four or five years. But that initial spark, I'm trying as best as I can remember, I think it started off with this image in my mind of this old fellow who was a a recluse, who was um, basically a hermit, who was um, burdened by his past and couldn't relate to his children. I had this image in my mind of this this old man, and I think that was the, the inciting... Um, moment for me and then the story effectively built itself around what it might have been that this fellow was hiding from his children that that he couldn't tell them about.
2: Was the old man based on anyone who you know came across your path or how did that image come into your head?
1: Well again that's another question I've wondered about myself recently but I think That um, Look, it's certainly not based on any person um, that I know. I think that um, it might have been sort of like this um, miniature version in my head of uh, the ghost of uh, Christmas yet to come, uh, Dickens' character, just this um, image perhaps in my head of uh, how things can go wrong um, uh, with parents and, and with people if they... If they let uh, certain things fester and they can't um, talk about them with other people
2: mm so you had this image of this old man and that's how everything ex- everything expanded from there so did when you were you know planning out your book, did you plan it did you plot it out or did you just start writing and and you know discovered where the story was taking you uh,
1: I very much um, was willing to go right from the start, but I decided to hold off for probably about two or three months, basically just to carry, carry the characters around with me in my head mm-hmm. um, and to get to know them really well. I had a little notebook where I jotted down ideas for each of the characters and really tried to flesh them out in my mind as mm-hmm. best as I could before I actually allowed myself to start writing the story. And similarly, the plot, I think the plot emerged from the the needs of each of the characters and how they intersected. There are, the story is told from five separate viewpoints mm-hmm. um, which were all interweaving. So I wanted to make sure before I started writing that I had a fair hand on the structure so that it didn't become an awful muddle before I got too far into it. Uh, yes, That's not to say that what I ended up with, with was what I started and the plot ended up the way it was always going to be. It certainly veered off into some unexpected directions, as, as can happen when you uh, allow the characters to, to uh, um, live and breathe in on the page
2: so you had to get to know your characters really well for this book and you mentioned that you you just you know let it sit for a while had a notebook to in order to develop your characters and get to know them what did you write in that notebook like did you put them in different scenarios or did you you know um put them in the scenarios you thought that would end up in the book or did you just do some exercises to to see how they would react in various situations how'd you get to know them
1: Well, firstly, I think it was, um, I suppose it started with their physical characteristics so that I could actually see them in my mind. Yeah. and, and, And then from there, their motivations, their desires, their fears. I had a sense that I had to make sure that each of them um was um a person who, who was who was aiming for something, who wanted something, to give each of them a narrative impulse and a drive. Mm. And similarly, fears and, and guilt and and remorse and, and, and the other negative sort of emotions so that um they were averse to certain situations. So so just as best as I could to try and differentiate each of them from the other. Um, so that each of them was believable, not necessarily sympathetic or, or nice to each other. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, on certain occasions, um, they they aren't, I suppose, as uh, ideal as people as they should be. But I suppose um, I was just trying to create believable and real characters.
2: So you have a day job. You're a barrister in Melbourne. Is that correct?
1: Yes, yes I am.
2: so how did you juggle the time to you know deal with a fairly demanding job, but also have the time to devote to writing this is your second novel
1: mm. uh well uh, firstly, it took a long time <laughs> <laughs> firstly it, it took um a number of years mm. um and uh secondly it was my night job so that I yes. would come home at night and um, and write. Um, and I tried to have a, a fairly um, systematic and ordered um, approach to that. But that said, I must say that writing is one of those things which just gives me so much joy and so much energy that um, <clears throat> it's not something where I... It costs me energy, it gives the energy. So that mm. the hard thing for me is not sitting down to write at night, but in fact stopping uh, and going yes. to bed at a in hour. So, so when did... Um, no, go on. Yeah, so um, that that was a process where look, most nights um, I would probably be writing for two or three hours. Right. And, and sometime on the weekend as well. well I must say, the other complicating factor is that I have two young children as well. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm I'm mindful it's important to have a a balanced life as well. Um, And I must say I'm I'm pleased that the book has been published and I have a little bit of time now to um, enjoy other aspects of my life before I get into the next project.
2: Wonderful. So you obviously enjoy writing. And uh, when did you know then that you wanted to be a writer? And when you... Knew that. What steps did you take to make that happen?
1: Well, um, I must say that I was a late starter because my uh, initial love was music, and I used to be a cellist. Mm. And after I finished school, I, I um, very soon afterwards uh, won a scholarship to go and study the cello in Vienna, mm-hmm. where I lived for several years. But unfortunately, my um, Dream of being a a solo cellist um, was um, thwarted because I developed an allergy to cello rosin which um, was a condition where I lost a lot of the skin on my fingers, contact allergy, and I couldn't play anymore um, in concerts and I had to stop. Uh, So that was my first, shall I say, hiccup, Mm. Um, I came back to Australia and I threw myself into a law degree and I graduated and got a job in um, one of the large law firms down here and then uh, um, eventually I went to the bar to become a barrister in my late 20s. And um, I'm skipping over a few few things, a little bit happened in the interim but uh, uh, for all intents and purposes um, I'd been a barrister for about a year and a half, and again, life was going swimmingly until um, I was on a an overseas trip to South America at the end of the year, and I developed a little ulcer in my tongue, which um, looked fairly nasty and wouldn't go away. And to cut a long story short, I had developed a tongue cancer, which um, led to me having surgery to remove half of my tongue led to me having chemotherapy and radiotherapy and taking over a year off work. Mm. Now, um, that at the age of 31 was fairly confronting and um, caused me to really, I suppose, have a completely different perspective on life than what I had had previously. Mm. And um, having that time off work um, and uh, uh, that I suppose, um, different perspective on things, um, I just found that I had a a need and a desire to write fiction. Now, right. Um, yeah. I have, I have always been a voracious reader. Um, mm. Absolutely devoured books all through my 20s. Um, not so much at school, but after school. Mm-hmm. But um, I had never done that with a, a view to be a novelist but um, something I suppose just clicked in my head that this was, when I started writing I discovered that the joy for me of writing was as much as it was of reading mm. and uh, that I actually found it was quite a similar process of, of of thought and introspection that reading involved so um, it sort of just grew out of that so in my early 30s I um, I just started writing novels. I mm. um and, and You just started and, 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 writing novels. Yes, yeah. And I must wow. say the first one is Festering in My Bottom Drawer. It's not <laughs> a great it's a very unusual book. Um I don't think you'd call it a publishable book, but it certainly was one of those first novel which gets out all the stuff that you need to get out before you then turn to something which is more sensible. Yes. And um yeah, I just I I um uh, I wrote another couple which are in the bottom drawer as well and then um, I think having those three which I had a go at then I started on The Philanthropist which was the first book which, which um, I then decided was um, the book I really wanted to to get out into the market mm. and, and that was my first one which was published so um, there were a few years there but... Um, uh yeah. It ended up in um, my first book being published and now my second.
2: Yes. So The Philanthropist, which was your first novel, was in 2010. Now, this is your second novel. So I often talk to authors on their second novel and they tell me about the, you know, kind of like the pressure of the sophomore act in a sense. You know, they've really got to deliver this time because to show that the first one uh, was real in a sense. Did you feel pressure with this novel?
1: Uh, Well, um, one... uh I suppose, um, good pressure valve release for me is that I have this other very, um, consuming, um, job as well as a barrister. So, Mm. um, uh, it's nice. I mean, for me at least as a, as a writer, it's nice to have something that I, um, can turn my attention to, um, when I'm not writing. Um, and I, but in terms of pressure, um, I, I was just absolutely, when the, the idea for this new book came for me, I was absolutely, um, it, it just seized hold of me,
2: right. absolutely
1: seized hold of me, and I just had to write it, and I couldn't let go of the idea until it was done and dusted. So, um, the first draft was a pretty feverish um, period of time for me, and um then I suppose it's the redrafting which takes for me the the most amount of time. Um, so the the initial draft is something um, I fly through, and the and the redraft it costs me a lot of time and effort. And right. certainly in that redrafting process, I was very conscious to very very conscious to do the absolute best that I could to to try and make it um, sparkle. So yeah, I I, I really yeah. Whether it does or not, it's obviously not for me to judge, but (laughs) I certainly left no stone unturned to to give it my best shot.
2: How did you know that you had, you know, gotten it to a stage where it was the best that you could do? What were the signs for you that made you feel, okay, this is the final draft?
1: I suspect I got to a point where um, I was um, changing things (laughs) the same sentence several times. I descended to a level of detail which was probably a little bit unhealthy, um, mm-hmm. and I just figured that it was time to stop um, and uh, and uh, let let go of it. Um, which you know, I suppose that's something most writers or many re- writers could relate to, um, and and I think also I reached a point where, um, yeah, I. I'd been living with it and working with it for so long Mm. that um, I just figured it was time for somebody else to cast an impartial and critical eye over what had been done.
2: Yeah, sure. And so you say you, you call it your night job so when you come, you know, when you're in the throes of writing it, and you come home from, you know, already a full day at work, <clears throat> to get into the groove of writing, did you have any kind of writing routine? Did you have any, you know, like rituals that, or did you aim to uh, write a thousand words a day, or, or any number of words a day, anything like that? Is there, how the? Can you tell us about the actual writing process when you were in the throes of writing it?
1: Uh, as for um, a transition, look, generally, because um, our kids, when I was writing this in particular, they were quite young, so they would go to bed well, 8.30ish or 8 o'clock, and then I'd have a chat with my wife, and then I'd probably sit down and start writing at about 9 o'clock. But as soon as I sat down to start writing, bing, I was, I was on and I was um, alert. and um, So uh, it, really, it really did just... Grab me wow.
0: um
1: so um yeah seriously it was the hardest thing for me it was was knowing that if i overdid it mm. um on a night then i'd be exhausted the next day so just knowing that t- setting myself a sensible endpoint at night making sure yes. i had a a clock or something visible so that i the mm-hmm. time didn't just slip <laughs> past too quickly um, so, no, I didn't have any targets, although certainly I I do like to be efficient and, and write uh, and not um, not uh, spend too much time dilly-dallying because, unfortunately, so much to do.
2: Yes. So <laughs> but, clearly yeah. you never suffered from writer's block. Uh,
1: certainly not while drafting this book. Mm. Um, and... Look, well, fingers crossed, I won't in future. Um, yes. But I suppose you never know. I mean, there are so many instances, you know, of writers who do have trouble coming to a new book. And I must say, even like um, a great writer who I so admire, Ian McEwan. I, I remember him saying once that, like, each book for him is starting. I might be quoting him wrongly, but I believe it was in my belief it that he said something to the effect that it was quite daunting even for him to start a new novel because each new novel then is is really a fresh challenge and you you never really know whether or not you're going to finish it and do it justice until you mm. actually get get to the end. So, um, And I certainly feel like that even though it was a joy to write it, still there was a, an element of daunting this, um, at, at the outset of oh dear, am I going to be able to Carry this off, and mm. can I see it through?
2: On that point, then, what was the most challenging part of the process? What was it that you know you did find hard? Because it's, it sounds a bit easy at the moment. What was oh, hard no, no, about no, it? No,
1: far from it. No, no. Um, well, certainly. I mean, the first, the first draft for me was was the part which I found um, the most. So I say easy because um, I allowed myself to to do a very rushed and imperfect and deliberately careless job on that first draft, just so that I had it could sustain the idea from the beginning to the end and then and look I've, whether or not this works for other writers um, I'm not sure but then I then I went back to the start, and I worked on it painstakingly line by line Mm. um, for much longer than the initial draft took. And that, for me, was the most difficult part of all. So the redrafting for me was was really challenging. And the most challenging thing for me was um, trying to um, differentiate and give life to each of the characters and make them believable. Mm. Um, and consistent within each other, yet um, capable of surprising the reader. Mm. And also um, having a style appropriate to each of the characters which made as as little distance as possible between the minds of the characters and the reader. So trying to establish that immediacy and that connection on the page Mm. to the reader for me um, was a technical matter which I... Pay very, very great attention to again whether or not it works or not is not for me to judge. But certainly that was that was something which I was very preoccupied with for a long, long period of time.
2: And what was the most exciting part of the journey? Apart from you know writing the end, probably, (laughs) Um, (laughs) apart from finishing it, what was the most? What was the bit that filled you with most? uh, The most. um, you know, um, enthusiasm and joy and excitement.
1: Well, I find when I write that I get a real um, heightened sense of um, not not trying to overcook it, but I get a really heightened sense of um, existence when 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 things are flowing and it's going well. Just it, it just is such a great way of making yourself look at things in a different light and imagining things from other people's mm-hmm. perspective. So just I mean that that is a a sense which I love from writing. up. I, I expect it's similar for painters and other artists, that that sort of um sense of being able to see see something they haven't seen before, look, to look for things that they haven't looked for before, that that I find really invigorating. Mm.
2: And um, what's next for you now that this book is out? Are you already writing your third novel?
1: Uh, again, um, I'm deliberately giving myself a little bit of a holiday. Yes. Um, and uh, I, um, I have three plots which are kicking around in my head and I'm basically allowing each of them to compete for primacy, so to speak. (laughs) They're like three little plants which are sort of on the forest floor. Each of them is straggling towards a patch of sunlight in the forest canopy (laughs) and whichever one gets there first, that's the one I'm going to write first.
2: Wow.
1: And again, I think before I start writing, I'll deliberately step back and write a little notebook and map out the characters and yes. and sort of a, a plot sort of summary just yeah. to give me a bit of a framework so that I know what I'm getting myself in for <laughs> before I actually get myself into it. Because as, as I said, for me at least, that initial process is, um, uh, yeah, I don't, there, there is always there's an element of um, apprehension um, that you, you don't want really to get, a third or a half into the book for me and then find it um it's just not going anywhere mm-hmm. you know, I've i've gone down the wrong path mm-hmm. which is not to say that i won't find that out after i finished it
2: <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully that doesn't happen so you essentially oh. seem to like creating these microcosms uh for yourself and and Letting or all, um, allow each character to be fleshed out, and see how they might interrelate and 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 where their story might take each other. If you, and that all happens in your head first before you ever put pen to paper or fingers to the keyboard.
1: Yeah, I I, I think of the characters sometimes, like because um, I when I was at school I did a lot of maths and science subjects, and I remember um, that. Teacher describing how gases, molecules in gases collide with each other and then bounce off from each other in different ways. I remember doing experiments on them. And in a certain respect, I think of my characters being like those little subatomic particles who collide into each other and bounce off in different ways. And um, ideally, um, if um, they bounce off in ways which are true to their character yet are unexpected for the reader or couldn't have been anticipated, for me that's a terrific, um, a terrific uh, result if, if I can achieve that on the page. So yeah, I, I think of the characters as each of them being impelled by their little needs and wants and desires and fears um, and sort of colliding off each other in different and unexpected directions.
2: What a wonderful description. And um, finally, what's your advice for aspiring writers who you know, who are listening to this and who hope to be in a position like you are one day?
1: Well, firstly, I'd say it's such a wonderful um, thing to do and such a wonderful way of um, being able to um, help you to, to form your own ideas and view the world. And um, if, if it's... Well... Um, if novel writing is the aim then um, it takes time but it's worth the effort and just to um, read as many novels and work as hard as you can and, uh, and hopefully your dreams will come true
2: Well wonderful and wonderful book The Last Will and Testament of Henry Hoffman John thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thanks very much fellow. it's been a pleasure
0: So there you go, John to Yeah, well, that was really interesting. Like, it's fascinating
2: how people come to writing, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, when I first found out about John, I kind of um, really sympathised in the whole allergy thing because way back in the day when I played the flute, I developed an allergy to the
0: metal in the flute. Oh, stop. (laughs) And I had to stop playing the flute. (laughs) True. I, you should I have seen know.
2: my lips. It was not pretty.
0: I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> I just, I've got nothing. So did it develop over time or was it like a new thing? Uh, like an all, is it an all of a sudden thing? For me, I
2: think I was only playing the flute for. A, it, it was very early, so I had only been playing the flute for about three months. But I think when you really up your practice and put in the hours, the contact with your, you know, skin or with your lip and the flute obviously increases, and it just just got worse and worse and worse, and it was it was not pretty
0: at mm. all. No, mm. I can imagine. So bye bye flute. There okay. You go. <laughs> so did you pick up something else? We picked up the cello.
2: <laughs> All right, I got nothing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't last with that
2: one though. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs>
2: oh, okay. Okay. All right. Now I
0: believe we have. A, let's let's get this back on track. I believe we have a question.
2: Yes, we do. From Michael Gray. Thank you for your question. And Michael asked his uh, question through Twitter to it, you. So it, to me. Yes. yes. It what says. did
0: he say? Hi, Alison. I'm a big fan of the cast. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Um, Could I ask if you know the best place to find work for someone beginning freelance content writing? There are so many websites, I have no idea where to start. Mm. So, Valerie, okay. what's the best <laughs> place to start if you are starting out as a freelance content writer?
2: I think that if you want to make money from it as opposed to just do it for fun and earn five bucks. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. If you want
2: to make proper money from it, you don't actually start with um, places like, you know, Odesk and uh, Elance and stuff like Mm. that. I'm not saying they're not good places for other things. Like I Mm. I use Odesk and Elance, but to – for, for other reasons, you know, to find um, coders or VAs or that sort of thing. But in terms of writing, it's a very, very low price point that people are offering on Odesk yeah. and elance like very, very low. So I think that in terms of content writing and if by that you mean writing blog posts for people or writing um, – you know websites for people uh one of the things you've said allison which mm. i 100 percent agree with is to start with your friends or people mm. in your own network
0: yes um I, I, I think if you're starting out with anything any kind of writing work that is the best place to start yes. is to talk to people that you know let people know that you're doing it let people um know. and you probably start i mean you know I, I remember when i first started writing websites for example which i do on a regular basis um i hadn't done it before so i did a couple for friends um Mm. just to see you know what was involved how long it would take me it allowed me to set a price point yes um, for myself um so i i sort of worked back from there so i did two for friends and then i had two and and i did those for nothing because i love them Mm. um and then i had two places to to show people to say look this is what i can do this is what i've done this is how it works this Mm. is how much i charge because you know whatever and and off i went from there Mm,
2: Absolutely. And I think that a smart place to hang out either online or in person is actually among small business owners because that is where the boom in content writing mm-hmm. is happening. Yeah. Other writers aren't necessarily going to need, you know, content. So, but, but when you go to small business networking events and say, oh, I'm a copywriter or oh, I'm a content writer, mm-hmm. that's when people go, I need your services. Mm-hmm. And you need to actually get out there and hang around small business owners if you want to do, you know, blog writing writing for a dentist or a chiropractor or a real estate agent or whatever, whatever your area of interest is. Yeah. And if you have an interest in, I don't know, music, hang out with musicians. So you go to where people need your work, not so much the, the websites that are saying, hey, we'll, um, you know, like, like Elance and Odesk. However, there are websites, I will admit, that like um, King Content and Newsmodo that oh. are kind of like the middleman to provide content to businesses, but I actually think you will have quicker and greater success if you go straight to the businesses.
0: Okay. Can I also make another point? I do have one more very exciting point to make. Do go. You need your own blog and it needs to be good. Uh, and yes. you need a social media presence and it yes. needs to be consistent because if you are putting yourself out there as a content writer, you need to show that you're actually doing it, um, mm-hmm. even if it's only on your own blog and or your own website and things like that. People will want to get an idea of the kinds of things you're doing. And if you're going to do that, make sure that you proofread them and make sure that they're edited. And, uh, you know, like if I go to a – if I'm looking for a content writer and I go to their own blog – and it's full of spelling mistakes and it hasn't been updated since, you know, 1992, mm. um, I'm telling you that that is not the impression that you wish to. Like your blog is your business card for this kind of work.
2: Yes, and I agree about having a social media presence. Someone, yeah. in, uh, someone in the uh, – one of our students actually said that, you know, she's not on social media, not on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, and not on anything and doesn't really want to be – is that professional suicide for her as a writer? And mm-hmm. I said, no, it's not professional suicide. You can still be successful – as a writer, but it'll just be 10 times harder for you than somebody who does have a social media presence
0: because it's it, not- It will because people, mm. I mean, you know, it's just an unfortunate fact of life these days and it's it's like authors who tell me that they just want to write a book. They don't want to, you know, have to do platforming and they don't want to be doing blogging and they don't want to do anything. Yeah. The first thing that people do these days is to Google you. Yep. That's the first thing they do. And I know Jacinta DeMarce, when we spoke to her last week, she said mm. she's a rare agent because she said that it's not the first thing she does. Mm. But most agents and most publishers will Google you and they will want to see and, and editors, you know, and people who might be looking to take your services as a content writer, mm. all those things, they will Google you. And what you want to come up to the top of their Google search is the message that you control. You want it yep. to be your blog or your Facebook page or your whatever, your LinkedIn, whatever it is. Yep. Um, so be somewhere. Just Absolutely. be somewhere. Absolutely. And be consistently there so that you do rise to the top with that Google search.
2: So, Michael, we hope that's useful for you. Um, if you have any other questions, you know, ping us again on social media. And if any of you have any questions for our segment on our working writer's tip, please do let us know. You can email us, podcast at or just ping us on social media.
0: Hmm.
2: Hmm. Speaking of which...
0: Where yes, do we where, find you where on where social will media? We find me. Oh, let's go through the trail. So you will find me on Twitter, as Michael did, at at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. You will find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. Um, But probably the best place to go is com because all my links to everything are right there. Yep. And you'll find I me have said that first shouldn't I really <laughs> Yes <laughs> Anyway
2: you'll find me at valericu.com and you'll find the show notes slash podcast but wow. I have one more thing to say which yes. I've forgotten to say I for know. the last couple of um, episodes is that stick around to the very end of the episode everyone because at the end of every episode we've got a surprise for you where you can win stuff Oh. Mm. So stick around to the very end and you'll get de- – every single week it's going to be a different thing that you can win, oh. a book, of course. and uh, And, yeah, you'll find all of the details at the end of the episode. So until next week, keep on listening. We will talk to you then. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. This week's giveaway is Finders Keepers by Stephen King, the one and only Stephen King, which is about a reader who has an obsession with a reclusive writer. Visit writerscentre.com.au slash win for your chance to win. Entries close Monday, 17 August, 2015. But if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry, there will be a new book giveaway at writerscentre.com.au slash win that you can check out. In the meantime, if you're looking for the show notes to this episode, go to writercentre.com.au slash podcast.